thank you for being here. Some of you are here because uh, you're my friends and you just didn't want to hurt my feelings by not being here if I was going to make a speech and, and, and you want to be here. Thank you. Uh, I need every friend I have in the world. Uh, some of you are here, and I hope even those who are friends, because you're interested in the topic. Uh, this is a topic that across the years at Pepperdine, I have been able to talk about uh, freely, openly. It is a passionate concern of mine. Um, I have not done as much to, to advance it, I'm sure, as I should have over those years, but I believe talking about it, being sensitive to it, being open to God trying to give us insight and understanding as to what the unity of the body of Christ is supposed to be is an important thing. But as a matter of fact, I think right now I am doing more in terms of being able to live into the experience of the unity of the church than I've ever been able to in my life before. And I won't talk about that except just this little slug at the beginning. I'm, um, it's amazing to me, uh, several of you came in saying, tell me about this new church you're involved in doing. Um, I'm doing something that for 25 years I prayed to have the opportunity to do. I've said for years, my wife and I have said, wouldn't it be wonderful to be involved in planting a church on a blank sheet of paper? If you, if you go to a church, as most of us do, who preach, and we, you know, are at such and such place, if that church has been there as long as three weeks, there are traditions. And if you do anything differently than has been done in the previous three weeks, it takes two years of justification. Uh, and so I thought, you know, just on a black sheet of paper where you go in and, and you, you don't have the ruts. I'm seven weeks deep into that experience. And, and one of the, the driving um, forces in that church setting is an attempt to live out um, our shared understanding of the unity of the body of Christ. Uh, we simply call ourselves the Murray Hills Church. Um, the, there, there are three of us, really, who are on staff. Two of us are out of a Church of Christ background. One is out of a Baptist background. Um, the person out of a Baptist background is an African-American female. Uh, she is our community pastor, associate pastor in, in the church. And um, the kind of unity that I'm going to be talking about today is not just unity within the American Restoration Movement. It's the kind of unity I think God expects us to pursue that is racial, ethnic, gender inclusive, all of the other ways that we have devised over the course of human history to segregate ourselves into us versus them. I think all of those are in violation of the will of God, and I'll, I'll, I'll set that up theologically in a moment and show what I think the early people in what we call the American Restoration Movement or the Stone Campbell Movement had <clears throat> at least a glimpse into it. I, th I think their concern was mostly theological and it was not the other issues. I think the kingdom of God must simultaneously embrace all of those issues. And there can't be slave or free, there can't be male or female, there can't be Jew or Greek, we can't be tribal, Christian, we can't, we can't be gender exclusive. Um, our, our culture is coming to terms with some of that. The church should have been leading in it. 
I think the culture is forcing us to ask some of those questions. So let's talk about the plea for Christian unity. Holy God, Father, Son, Spirit, living in perfect unity, living as the ideal community from eternity past into all eternity yet to come. Help us to understand a bit better who you are for the sake of understanding who we are supposed to be as people created in your image and likeness. And as surely as you can be a holy trinity and yet one, help us understand that for our different colors, our different languages, our genders, our educational backgrounds, our economic levels, all of the other ways by which we classify one another. Help us to understand that you intend for us to be one, Father, as you and the Son and the Spirit are one. And to value and pray for that which the Lord Christ himself valued and prayed for. In his name we offer this prayer. Amen. A plea for Christian unity. Is it still meaningful? That assumes that it has been. I think it has been more meaningful and it has been more urgent on the minds of people in, in Christian tradition than it is right now. And I certainly believe that in our heritage in what is called Stone Campbell or American Restoration Movement, there have been times in my own lifetime that it has been talked about much more, maybe talked about to be debated or pushed back against, but at least it was talked about more than I hear it being talked about today. And so I guess my cynical answer to the question I'm raising, is it still meaningful to churches of Christ? In my most cynical moment, I would say, I don't see a lot of evidence that it is. Maybe in my more candid moments, I just want to say, I hope so. But for the sake of those of us who can have our passions rekindled a bit in these few days, I hope the answer really is still yes. That is a meaningful part of what we intend for our identity to be in the um, current religious scene as the kingdom of God continues to make progress. Um, so... In setting this up, I set up the second day. Uh, it's probably because in the hotel room I was uh, setting it up and didn't pay close attention. I want to begin with a series of questions. I wish we had time to d discuss each of these questions, but let me just pose them. Question number one. When was the last time you prayed for the unity of Christ's followers. If Jesus prayed for it, don't you think we should? Um, I, I don't mean only when is the last time in a congregational assembly you prayed for the unity of the body of Christ. Is, is that an ongoing concern in your prayers? For the unity of the congregation in which you live, for the unity of that congregation with other congregations of the same or similar stripe, or the unity of the body of Christ in its tribal diversity in the place where you live. 
the church that um, I'm now working with, we had on December 17th last year, um, special contribution at the home church, sort of a multi-site model. And a check came in from a local Episcopal church for $100. They said, we've, we've heard about the special contribution you're going to do the Columbia Church for that church in Spring Hill. We want to encourage that. We think the gospel needs to be spread. We made a big deal of showing that to the church and saying, you know, out of our history and heritage, we talk about affirming the body of Christ, the unity of the body of Christ. I don't think it would have occurred to us to have sent $100 or $500 to a church across the way that wasn't of our same tribe and stripe. And so I asked permission. I said, church, let's just stop and pray for St. Peter's Episcopal. When's the last time you've prayed a congregational prayer? In our new church, Every so many Sundays, we, we pray. First Sunday we were together, we prayed for um, a local Baptist church that had sent us a message, a message of goodwill for our beginning. If Jesus prayed for the unity of those who believe on him, don't you think we should? Number two, when was the last time you deliberately crossed a dividing line that keeps Christians separated from one another? Well, that's the personal dimension that I was talking about earlier. I'm talking about a racial ethnic line. When is the last time, whatever your race, ethnicity is, you've had someone, Asian, African American, Caucasian, in, into your home? Uh, not, you know, you, well, yeah, I, I work with, I'm a school teacher, and the lady at two rooms down is different. No, I'm talking about some intentional personal crossing of one of these lines like racial, ethnic, or sex and gender, or congregational and personal, or Episcopalian and Church of Christ, or Baptist and Catholic. Number three, how does your local church demonstrate unity to its immediate community? Most of us don't do a particularly good job if we have a relationship with other churches, it's usually at arm's length, and it will be around, oh, maybe a referendum about paramutual gambling or, you know, some, but, but we want to understand that's political, it's not really spiritual, and we're not, no, we've got to get past that. Um, have a once a year Thanksgiving assembly, and you participate in it with churches from your community, great, I hope you do. A um, little town where my wife's family and where I met her, um, church there, fired its preacher because without thinking and knowing you had to get permission, he participated in a community Thanksgiving service and led a prayer. Well, there were folks from the denominations on that program, and that compromised the gospel. It cost him his job. Um, what about even sharing property. I, I really wish there were some church in Spring Hill that would meet at 2 o'clock in the afternoon so we could have 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, you know, and, and well. Um, a friend of mine, and some of you may know this location, obviously it's, it's out more in this part of the country. You may know this property. I don't. George came back 
from vacation, and this was 10 years ago. He's dead now. I, I can't go back and trace the history of it. it I'm, I'm sorry I don't have it. But he came back and he said, Rubel, you'd have loved it. And he showed me this photograph of, is this an adobe building, style building? Uh, it's obviously a church building. You got the bell, you got the cross. Now you can't see that sign. So he brought me a second picture. And in case you still can't read it clearly, Episcopal services, Sunday at 8, Church of Christ service, Sunday at 11, and Roman Catholic, first and third Sundays at 4 p.m. Uh, how many millions of dollars do we sink into church properties? And, uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're renting a school building. I hope we can stay there for a long period of time. Um, so that we, we don't have to pay the mortgage. And by the way, we have a budget based on 48 Sundays a year so that four Sundays a year we can take the total contribution, not just what's above budget, and bless somebody outside ourselves. So the third Sunday we met, we did that, was Easter Sunday. We had a $5,000 contribution that Sunday because we'd announced before that we were going to help another church with a food pantry project that they have called the Well Outreach and to let you know how devious I am. Two weeks later, invited the sort of community rep person from that project. We want you to come over. We're a young church. We're trying to help our folks find places where they can serve the community. Why don't you come over and give a two, three-minute elevator speech about what you're doing at the well? She'd given us a tour. And um, let them know about, some of them might want to volunteer. Oh, be glad to. That's, that's, that's what I do. So she came, um, Ebony. The, the lady I mentioned to you a moment ago, she called her up on stage. She presented her, introduced her, stood back. She said, oh, Anna, before you leave stage, um, here's a check that, that we want to give you. And she opened the check, and the waterworks just started. And um, the, the, the idea of sharing and participating, why do we need... Yeah, properties may be harder to share. I wish we knew a better way of doing that. But why do we have to reinvent the wheel with ministries? Why do we have to have, if, if they're doing a really good, we're not going to have a food pantry. We're helping this church with its food pantry operation. We're going to help fund that periodically so that we don't have to do. We, we will find our niche and we will try to serve the larger community. I think we can do a better job than that, than 13 churches in town. I don't know how many are there. Having each a food pantry and each having something for medicine, each having something for... Why can't we witness to the unity of the body? Uh, or number four, what degree of risk would you be willing to take to pursue the oneness of the church? Um, what would you be willing, be willing to say or do to affirm the unity of Christians that you're not doing now? Um, internally to your own church to try to make peace among folks who are estranged or across a denominational line? Um, based on those questions, let me take the second step and say, let me throw out a series of challenges just on the front end. Unity assumes and requires a variety of types and forms. Let me explain what I mean by that. Most of us, when we use the word unity, may be meaning 
homogeneity. What's the difference in unity and homogeneity? Homogeneity means what? We are alike. We are thinking alike. We have enough in common in background, vocabulary, interests, so that the forms of worship and the mechanisms of service, we are doing it our way. That's not unity. That's homogeneity. Homogeneity has to do with the whiteness or the blackness or the Latinoness or whatever of membership to it, it's all of those. Unity assumes great diversity because you have unity where you have among the participants great difference and yet something that they find in common that is greater than the differences of slave and free or Jew and Greek or male and female in which they find oneness. So one of the challenges to accept is to, to tweak what you are using in terms of the notion of unity. Unity doesn't mean we're thinking alike, speaking alike, and doing alike. It means, you know, we don't think alike. We, we, we see this differently. We, we come at scripture differently. Some are more conservative, some are more liberal. Some worship this way, some value this form, some are high church, some are, you know, whatever. Number two, we've misunderstood and misapplied scripture to justify the ongoing division that we live. I could use a number of texts and will, but let's, let's just start with one. Amos chapter 3, verse 3. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Some of you, that may have already come to mind when I talked about the difference in homogeneity and unity, and you said, but there does have to be sameness. There has to be sameness of thought and speech and so on, because the Bible says two people just can't walk together unless they are agreed. Well, that's the King James translation of that. And it's a passable translation, but it probably leaves the wrong impression. The NIV more correctly translates, do two people walk together unless they've agreed to do so? Now go back to that, that King James translation. Can two people walk together unless they're agreed? And somebody says, yeah, that's, that's important. We, we, we can't walk together unless we agree. Anybody else married? <laughs> My wife and I walk together. We are, we're about as different as any two people you know. And she'd be the first to tell you that. And we, we, we practice mutual submission. And we walk together, but there are lots of things in terms of things we did with the rearing of our kids or how much we can do for our grandkids on their mission trips or whatever. There are a lot of things in terms of TV program we want to watch or whatever. And we got more than one TV, but we don't think the best answer is, well, you just go watch what you want to. I'm watching this. Uh, the new RSV probably gets it most literally correct. Do two walk together unless they've made an appointment? The notion here is not there can only be spiritual unity if you see eye to eye on everything. The notion in Amos is, you know, if you are going to walk together and share life with anybody, you're going to have to try. You'll, you'll have to 
you have to make the appointment to both show up at this time and place. Uh, you'll, you'll have to agree that this is more important than the other. Uh, we'll get 1 Corinthians 1. I know you're worried about that one too, but we'll, we'll get to that one in just a few minutes. Number three, we've yielded to the flesh rather than follow the Spirit in order to perpetuate the divisions with which I think we're too comfortable. I have been. Now, studies do show that all of us prefer, quote, our own kind. Go back to homogeneity. I'm more comfortable with people who do think like me, who do have background, not identical but similar to me. We have more vocabulary. We have more values. We have more conversation base that's easy for us. Most of us just find it easier to be comfortable and at ease among those people with whom we share a greater amount of of commonality. Theodore Newcomb did some research with college, uh, college dorms that were deliberately filled with tremendous variety and found out that, quote, the preference for those who are demographically similar remains strong. In other words, in those studies done on college and university campuses, the dorms deliberately made diverse. Students would find each other out and people who came from certain geographical regions, people who had certain interests in, say, football over basketball or sports over the band or, or art. Yeah, we do that. That's normal. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we must not let that become the norm against the spirit-led demand cross boundaries. When the early church was essentially Jewish and resisting the notion of admitting Gentiles, whether you're thinking of the case specific of Cornelius or the larger issue that that eventually raised in Acts 15, the, the, the conference, the debate about whether Paul should be blessed in this work of taking the gospel to Gentiles, isn't Jesus Jewish and, and aren't the promises, the covenant promises made to Abraham? It would have been a lot easier for them to say, well, you know, we, 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 if, if Paul wants to do that over there, but now here. And, and when he gets into those towns, if there's a synagogue, probably the early church did not live that. The early church said, in Christ... There cannot be this perpetuation of the sociological, theological, racial divisions. In Christ, there can't be Jew, Greek, male, female, bond-free. We are one. I would build on that and say denominations aren't wrong. We do cluster with people who've come to similar understandings to our own. Whether they've come to those understandings because, well, my family's always been or whether they've come to those understandings because they've they've thought them through. Of course, it is easier to be with, easier to serve with, easier to worship with, easier to have conversation with people who've come to similar conclusions you have about the millennium, about the form of worship, about baptism, about whatever, than it is for people with whom you're diverse. That we do that is what creates denominations. I don't think denominations are evil. What's evil is sectarianism. That once we've clustered around those things that, oh, I have more in common with this group than that group. 
Nothing wrong with saying, well, I, I think I will cast my lot here. But now what is wrong is to say, and those people are going to hell. Or at least they probably are. Because they didn't come to the conclusions that we came to. That's sectarianism. Sectarianism is an ugly spirit of judgmentalism. Denominationalism, I think, is the natural spirit of we tend to cluster with those who are more like us than those who are more different from us. In a healthy church, the greater there is diversity across these lines of gender and race and education and economy and theological understanding, I believe the healthier that will be. We don't reflect the nature of God unless we learn to be one as Jesus and the Father are one. I'm going to sort of skip that point because tomorrow I'm going to camp there. We're going to talk about Trinitarian theology tomorrow. You know what happens when you bring up the Trinity at church? Oh, let's feel reverent and move on. Nobody understands the notion of the Trinity. The notion of Trinity is not that complex. And if we're in the image of God, one of the ways we're in the image of God has to do with this oneness that is found in the three personalities of the deity. And Jesus did, in fact, pray, did he not, in that John 17 prayer? Father, I want them to be one as you and I are one. The Father and the Son are not the same person. You and I are not the same persons and personalities. How can two be one? Well, we are not living the oneness of the body of Christ and it might help us if we reflect on what Trinitarian theology means and understand that it matters. And then the final challenge, our divisions foster unbelief in the world. I don't think that one needs to be proved. Um, we, we have historically fostered unbelief by virtue of our division. That looks like a Photoshop picture. Probably is. Um, that one isn't. That's an actual photograph that I took when it was rerun in uh, USA Today on January 18th of last year. And here was the headline, Battling Bucks Die After Antlers Locked Together in Missouri Woods. And apparently what happened, these bucks, as bucks do, as, as animals do, staking out their turf and claiming uh, priority within, within the group and claiming the, the doe, the, whatever the females are called. Uh, animals do that. Humans do sometimes, too. We can act like animals. By the way, I'm so sick and tired of hearing people use as an excuse, well, I'm only human. If you are human, you ought not to live like an animal. The fact that you're human means, either on an evolutionary scale and certainly within a biblical cosmology, that you should live at a level that is above anything that makes excuse for itself. You are human only when you are living in imitation of Jesus Christ. But that's next year or something other. This is what happens when the kind of situation that we fostered, they both die. Yes, sometimes one wins, but very often both die. Stanley Harawas. God's desire is to have a people in the world who refuse to let worldly divisions determine their relationship to one another. Well, I think he's spot on in that observation. And with regard to a little bit of, of 
conversation about movements. Last year was the 500-year celebration of the Protestant Reformation, of what, what happens with especially Martin Luther in Germany and the good and the bad that, that was generated by that. But Luther really didn't mean to leave the Catholic Church. And by the way, there weren't any Protestants then. That, that was the church. Luther didn't mean to leave the church. Luther said there's corruption in the church. Luther tried to create a movement to purify. Methodism, the Wesleys, Methodism is a movement, Harawas language, that by accident became a church in America. It was an attempt, again, to create some method, methodology, of spiritual disciplines within a Christian tradition that Wesley believed had, had grown cold in terms of the depth of its spiritual fervor. Have you ever thought about the fact that the American Restoration thing is not called the American Restoration Church? They talked about, they actually used the term Reformation. The early guys in, in this what we came to call the American Restoration Movement. Most of them did not have, or at least originally, the idea of leaving the churches in which they were. Very much like Luther and the Catholic Church 500 years ago, very much like the Wesleys trying to find reform and renewal. People like the Campbells and the Stones and the O'Kellys and the Smiths at least at the beginning, didn't have the idea of not being Methodists anymore, not being Baptists anymore, not being Presbyterians anymore. They talked about a movement to call for something larger than their tribal loyalties that would keep them from expending their energy, wasting their energies fighting one another, when especially in the American frontier, the American Restoration Movement, there was so much wild, open, loose, immoral, wicked, gunfighting, brawling, you know, alcohol. We need to present a united witness, and, and the united witness was not that, you know, let's burn down two of the church buildings and all go to the third. The notion was a movement. I wonder if we may not have fallen victim to that too, that the goal of the restoration movement eventually became, though I'm not sure it started out to be, an alternative institutional church with a new non-denominational denomination vying now and competing with the more established denominations already in place. That's just worth thinking about. So the question is, have we forgotten it or maybe was it just not conceived as clearly and thoughtfully as it should have been or formulated or promulgated or from earliest days lived as it might have been. I think some of the debates of that period and debates were common in the period. I think some of the debates and the anger that the debates generated. Have you noticed the anger that's being generated in the American political scene in the last two years? Nobody has, okay? Raise that to about the third, fourth, fifth power and you think about the kind of social, political, religious division of the debating that was done back in the early days of the Restoration Movement. And the debating 
had its intellectual side, but it had its gut and emotional side. And I think some of those debates that Campbell had on the form and nature of baptism, first with Presbyterians and later with Baptists, forced the drawing of some pretty thin, the, the, the slicing of some hairs along some pretty thin shafts so that if you don't slice it at the same place and to the same degree that I do, I will not have fellowship with you and I will not regard you as a brother in Christ and I will not regard your baptism as legitimate or I will not regard you as having the right to the communion table with me or I will not... I think from the early days in the particular social environment in which it was cast, the disagreements were as bitter as we are lamenting. The political disagreements are bitter in our time. I think they were more bitter. And, and this is ironic. In the name of being a unity movement, came along at a time that unity was the last thing the cultural setting valued that much because it valued the disagreement means we must not link arms, we cannot affirm one another, we will not regard each other in positive ways. Well, let's talk specifically about those of us who have roots in the American Restoration Movement, churches of Christ, Christian churches. That's not all of you. And it's probably hard for you to understand some of our vocabulary. We, we all have coded vocabulary. Presbyterians have coded vocabulary. Catholics have coded vocabulary. Baptists, Charismatics have coded, so do churches of Christ. All denominations have coded language. I'll be speaking some of our coded language, trying to translate some of it as I go for those of you that this is not your background. A lot of churches of Christ is explained by this. Now, if you want a copy of this, it's on the back side of your dollar bill. This is the verso, the, the, the reverse side of the great seal of the United States. We're more familiar with the front side. It's the eagle, you know, that has the weapons of war and one, uh, one talon, yeah, whatever, in one hand. And, and, and the olive branch of peace. And the, that's the front part. That's the part that we more often, this is the back side. The back side is probably more educational in some ways than the front side. Annuit Quetus, he smiled in our beginning, and the I up here. Religious people, and this was very hotly debated at the time that this was adopted for the great seal. For some, that was the eye of God. Many of the people during that period of time were either deist or outright atheists, agnostics. They would not let it be the eye of God. It was the eye of destiny or providence, a non-personal force. He has smiled or it has smiled on our beginnings. The beginnings of what? Roman numerals, 1776. 1776, the founding of the American Republic. And here, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, the 13 original colonies, they believed that something so unique was happening in the American experiment that a novus ordo seclorum, a new order of the ages, had been launched. And the background here, for a long time I thought that was water. It's not. It's a desert. You'll see the occasional tuft of grass here or there that you wouldn't see on an ocean. On the vast wilderness of human history, America has emerged. And America is a, a uniquely God-blessed experiment. 
and the American Restoration Movement is a product of both theology and culture born of that particular movement in philosophical history called modernity. Do I believe America is a blessed nation? Yes, I do. I believe Canada is a blessed nation. I believe Britain's a blessed nation. I believe France is a blessed nation. Do I think we have some unique blessings? Yes. Do I think the hand of God is uniquely in America so that America somehow is closer to God than the other nations of the world? I can't believe that. The kingdom of God and citizenship in the kingdom of God is what makes us precious to God. And out of every tribe and language and nation, and at least so Revelation says, when the new heavens and the earth are launched. But the American Restoration Movement grew out of a notion that in 1776 something started that today we debate, and I'll talk a little bit later today in the 1930s, 20s, and 30s, premillennialism. In the early days of the Restoration Movement, the issue was not premillennialism, it was what? Postmillennialism. Campbell believed that 1776 was the launch of the millennium. And that's why it is clearly a, an experiment in what is known philosophically as modernity. Because the thesis of modernity is that in the coming of the Renaissance, uh, the Great Awakening, uh, the Age of Reason, something unique happened and that progress would inevitably be forward. Campbell believed that, writes about the golden age that is beginning to dawn. He believed that from 1776, count forward a thousand years, things in that thousand years would get progressively better and better and better and better and at the end Jesus would come and would be personally present on earth. That is a modernity project. Some of them began to have their faith shaken a little bit by things like the Civil War. You get even beyond that and you decide maybe it has not been inevitable progress since 1776. And you wonder about where we are in this setting. Well, these new views... By the way... Some of the great sermons of Campbell and Restoration sermons, guess what day of the year they were preached on? Some of you know. July the 4th. Campbell's famous sermon on the law was preached July the 4th. The great patriotic celebrations, America, kingdom of God, the, the, the church that would, would be emerging to be you know, the, the, the center of the heart of God on earth, was much too inextricably bound up in the political, sociological, cultural phenomenon that was happening around it. These new views that were beginning to emerge, this is Thomas Campbell, Alexander's father. Those new views included such things as freedom. We will not answer to any single authority. We won't have a pope. We won't have a creed. We're an anti-institutional bunch. Nobody's going to tell us what we got to do. A different view of authority. This is, again, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the age of reason. It's that radical individualism. When Immanuel Kant writes the famous article, What is Enlightenment? He said it's the refusal to let anybody tell you what to think, believe, or do. 
Radical individualism. Radical individualism is not an idea you get from reading the scripture. Uh, in scripture you get the notion of community beginning with the way God himself lives and we in the image of God and, and the communal aspect. But radical individualism, authority is vested in the individual. Think how that works out in your churches. If you don't agree with them, you're just not going to go to church with them. You're not going to put your money in the plate. You, you're not going to bow your head if he's going to be the lead. You're not going to bow your head if she leads prayer. Radical individualism. Me against the world. But there was also this notion of unity. Sweet reason. Hallmark of modernity. Revelation to most people in the Renaissance, Enlightenment, Age of Reason period. Revelation is being pushed aside, but among those who are still doing religion... And sometimes you do religion in a two-tiered universe. God is upstairs and humans are downstairs. Science dominates here. It's great if you want to go to church on Sunday or read your Bible in private places. Just don't talk about it too much in public. But the notion of unity was, but even for those of us who are reading our Bibles, we believe that reason is going to bring all of us, remember the sermon title that some of you are old enough to remember hearing and preaching, we can all see the Bible alike. If we all take Scripture and think correctly about it, it's just like a math problem. We will all come out with the same answers. Right. But you see, that was the thesis of modernity about everything. Reason will solve all of our problems. So Campbell writes what book? The Christian System. The point is we read the Bible to systematize it, and if we get the elements of the system, the components of the machine humming right, T.W. Brent's in this in this. Huge book, what, seven, eight hundred pages? I don't remember. It's one of the thickest books on my shelf, what I had it on the shelf, uh, called The Gospel Plan of Salvation. The word cross appears one time in that entire book. C R O S S appears one time in the book. Salvation is a matter of we are free people, we'll answer to nobody. We have a Bible, we have reason, we're going to figure this out for ourselves, and out of that, the result will be, we will be exactly what that church was in the New Testament. It would create what never was. An ideal, pure, unsullied church. What page in your Bible has one of those ideal, unsullied churches in it? When you had apostles giving the personal hand of guidance that the Holy Spirit allowed them to exert, those churches were as diverse or more diverse than churches are in our confused time and place. Randy Harris and I wrote a book years ago and pilloried the Great Pit, the Golden Age Great Pit Theory of Church History. And the Golden Age, for what, a hundred years? Everything was ideal. The Great Pit, the Great Apostasy, Restoration Movement, Golden Age, Great Pit Theory, back to the Golden Age, we've restored that church. That's a very self-serving view of history, people. There never was a Golden Age. Not in Jerusalem, not at Colossae, 
not at Corinth, not in Rome. We've abstracted off an idealized church that never existed anywhere in reality by the tools of modernity, sweet reason. And just like a math problem, the marks of the true church, some of you remember that sermon too, the marks of the true church, and it always looked just like the church from whose pulpit it was being preached. Um, and, and this proves, and I can show you the bulletin mastheads. I've saved some in my files. We are the very same church that you read about on the pages of your New Testament. Well, Corinth maybe. Um, <laughs> racist Jerusalem maybe. But, but that, that's not what we meant by the language. In his declaration and address, this famous document, Doug Foster makes a comment about it. The strategy for effecting unity proposed by leaders like Martin W. Stone and Thomas and Alexander Campbell was an appeal to individual Christians, the faithful scattered throughout the sects, not to denominations. When true Christians abandoned the divisions represented by the mutually exclusive denominations to unite on the clear teachings of Scripture, those ideas on which all evangelical Christians already agreed without human philosophies and traditions Visible unity would be the result. In every locality, persons united to Christ would come together to form a church of Christ, inherently one with all other such groups. Early leaders rejected the Protestant invisible church idea of an existing spiritual unity because they believed it justified continued divisions between denominations. I think that's, that's as, as good a brief summary of what the early restoration movement pretty quickly devolved into. If it was originally a movement to call for purity and, and, and spiritual renewal in the various tribes, it pretty soon became an appeal that all the tribes need to dissolve in order to be part of this tribe, the new tribe. Because we finally figured it out and they either were, though they weren't Calvinistic, so depraved they couldn't, or just so dishonest they weren't willing to. In Campbell's declaration and address, his proposition one, won't read all the propositions, but a couple that are, that are pretty important. The church of Christ upon earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one, consisting of all those in every place that profess their faith in Christ and obedience to Him in all things according to the Scriptures, and that manifest the same by their tempers and conduct, and of none else, as none else can be truly and properly called Christians. I think the key expression in that opening quote is the notion of being constitutionally one. Remember, so wed to the American experiment. Dependent on a form or pattern in the Constitution, seeing the New Testament as a Constitution, much as strict constructionists see the United States Constitution as a, a blueprint for the way society operates. I think that notion of the New Testament as Constitution, the notion of we'll talk about the hermeneutic that, that became distinctive to the Restoration. You not only had to have the Bible, you had to have a particular way of reading it with this tripartite hermeneutic of command, example, and necessary inference. 
Well, proposition two, that although the church of Christ upon earth must necessarily exist in particular and distinct societies, locally separated from one another, yet there ought to be no schisms, schisms, no uncharitable divisions among them. They ought to receive each other as Christ Jesus has also received them to the glory of God. And for this purpose, they ought all to walk by the same rule, to mind and speak the same thing, and to be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, reinterpreted from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is lamenting the division that is in the church at Corinth around different favorite preachers and I'm sure different theological understandings that some would identify with one or the other or Christ, the, the pure group. Um, and when he says, I, I want you all to be united in the same mind and, and to be one, he's especially actually mocking the notion that any name other than Christ is the name that could be worn, that they must all wear the name of Christ and be perfectly joined together in their devotion to Christ, not in their understanding of all the different subject matters, because in the remainder of 1 Corinthians, Paul acknowledges that some of them need to cut each other some slack in terms of the way they're understanding certain things and the way they are living out their faith. So this is a, a reinterpretation of 1 Corinthians 1.10 of the mode in which it, it, it came to me that the unity of 1 Corinthians 1.10 is the unity of seeing everything. We can all see the Bible alike we'll all come to the same conclusion about baptism, about the millennium, about frequency of the Lord's Supper, about gender inclusiveness, about this, this, the other. We won't. We won't because there are a lot of factors other than Scripture and reason that influence all of us to come to the decisions we make and the conclusions we reach. Proposition 9 that all that are enabled through grace to make a profession of their faith in and obedience to Christ in all things according to His word and to manifest the reality of it in their tempers and conduct should consider each other as the precious saints of God, should love each other as brethren, children of the same family and father, temples of the same spirit, members of the same body, subjects of the same grace, objects of the same divine love, bought with the same price and joint heirs of the same inheritance, whom God hath thus joined together, no man should dare put asunder. There's some of the best language in the declaration and address affirming the unity of the body of Christ. But it's a unity, I fear, that assumes homogeneity, which is in fact then not unity because unity presumes some diversity. So the assumptions of this document quickly are that, number one, true Christians are in all the denominations. You can get in trouble if you say that in recent times. That, that some visible form of unity is needed for the sake of being God's faithful people, but not an overarching body, not, not, not a denominational network that enforces uniformity. Um, and if you read that document carefully, they, they don't oppose creeds. They oppose the abuse of creeds. Um, while back, 
um, in order to apply for a certain position, I had to give a creedal statement of my faith. So I cut and pasted the Apostles' Creed and signed it. I don't know if they just didn't know that I'd cut and pasted the Apostles' Creed and didn't recognize it, or they just thought, he's smart. Um, I mean, the, the Apostles' Creed, I mean, I sometimes use it in a worship setting, in, in a non-liturgical church. Some of you sing it. The Apostles' Creed is a great digest of, of core central biblical doctrine. There, there's nothing evil about... A cre the word creed simply means I believe. It's a way to confess something. John 3.16 is a creedal statement used the way most of us have used it historically. What they did oppose was the abuse of the creed, which meant that you must subscribe to that as interpreted by some body or by some body as in collective group or some individual coercing you to interpret it the way they did. But I guess the most pervasive underlying thing that I'd never seen in the declaration and address until I ran across a book quite by accident or by the hand of God in the Vanderbilt Library. And I, why I should have stumbled across it, I can't imagine. It's built on, and a lot of Campbell's thinking, Thomas and Alexander Campbell's, is built on the Presbyterian hermeneutic of the regulative principle. The Presbyterians held, and conservative Presbyterians still do, to the regulative principle that says, in order for anything to be a part of our faith life today, it must either be a direct command of Scripture or there must be precedent, apostolic precedent in Scripture for it. We thought that was unique to us. We inherited it from the Presbyterian as we inherited most of our theories of church government from the Presbyterians. Um, on pages 60 and 61, Campbell would not have added that third one, didn't add that third one, about inference. Um, our inference upon the whole is that where a professing Christian brother opposes or refuses nothing either in faith or practice for which there can be expressly produced, thus saith the Lord, we ought not to reject him because he cannot see with our eyes as to matters of human inference or private judgment. Through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish. How walkest thou not charitably? Campbell said this notion of inference, no, if there's black letter law or if there's precedent, apostolic precedent, we may hold that as a matter of faith. Anything that you have to come to by way of inference, reasoning apparatus, he said that can't be a test of fellowship. Those are the things that's, that have been the most divisive. Campbell and Stone disagreed on that. Campbell, Thomas, and Alexander believed that the rigorous study of Scripture would produce this sweet reason, common understanding of polity, worship practices, baptism, thus the Christian system. Stone said, well, Scripture is important. But all authority is not in the Bible, it's in Jesus. The Bible bears witness to Jesus. It's important for us to study Scripture. But the Spirit of Christ and Christian character produced by the presence of the Holy Spirit equally critical to effect true unity. And Stone would have accepted many that Campbell would not have because he said their character evidences the fruit of the Spirit. 
Barton Stone, the scriptures will never keep together in union and fellowship members not in the spirit of the scriptures, which spirit is love, peace, unity, forbearance, and cheerful obedience. This is the spirit of the great head of the body. I blush for my fellows who hold up the Bible as the bond of union, yet make their opinions of it tests of fellowship, who plead for union of all Christians, yet refuse fellowship with such as dissent from their notions. Vain men. Their zeal is not according to knowledge, nor is their spirit that of Christ. There is a day not far ahead that will declare it. Such anti-sectarian sectarians are doing more mischief to the cause and advancement of the truth, the unity of Christians, and the salvation of the world than all the skeptics in the world, in fact, that create skeptics. Wow. That's pretty strong. And so the naive optimism has tended to vanish that from 1776 forward, there is inevitable progress and getting better and better. And toward the end of the 19th century, it seemed apparent that the twin goals of restoration and unity were not dissolving the denominations away. Civil war had gone through. North and South churches had split. Unity is the primary uh, notion, led to the notion of some sort of organizational structure. And that's the route the disciples went. But restoration as the primary factor led to the claim of the now separate churches as identical with the church universal of the New Testament, which is where most of the churches of Christ and some independent Christian churches went. But the naive optimism was gone. Um, those would be significant dates if we had the time to, to talk about them in terms of Cane Ridge revival back in 1801 where Barton Stone, 10 to 30,000 people heard Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterians preach. And Stone said, if the spirit moves when these different denominations preach, the differences among the denominations must not be that important. Or 1807 when Campbell arrives writing the Declaration of Independence. 1894, Lipscomb wrote an article, where should I men preach? He said, I preach in Baptist churches. I preach in churches that use the organ. That I preach in Methodist churches. If you can get me an appointment in a Catholic church, I'd love to preach there. And I won't start with something where I think they're wrong. I'll start with those things that we share in common around Christ and believe that he will remove the error from, our, from all our hearts. 1930, Foy Wallace Jr. became the editor of the Gospel Advocate that David Lipscomb had edited for so long with an ironic open spirit and turned it into what it became as... I mean, to blackballing folks who were wrong on premillennialism and, and ruining the career of many a, a good man who could no longer be accepted to preach in any faithful church anymore. Um, so where are we at the end of the first session? There's still a lot of radical division, sectarian attitude that we've, fostered, we're getting, we're so much better about it than we were 20, 50 years ago. Many younger people, though, have become so disenchanted with that they've left churches of Christ. Some of you, your children and grandchildren, don't have any favorable attitude toward it. A lot of others who hang on to it do so with a lot of a sense of inferiority complex because we are so divisive hoping somehow to be able to live into a form of unity that we don't quite know how to articulate. Is there a way to articulate unity that is both biblical and culturally appropriate that we can live into 
and maybe even that we are living into. I think there is. And tomorrow I'll try to articulate that in clear and specific terms. Thank you for being here. Hope you'll want to be back tomorrow. And we'll do the other side. Thank you. <laughs>